Hello, Sarah. Hi, Josh. Welcome to the Belabored Podcast. <laughs> We're here. I know you guys have been waiting a long time for this. It's very exciting. I have been waiting a long time. I am very excited. <laughs> so, um, we're going to start off talking about a few stories um, in the media this week, and then we will bring you the interview with Karen Lewis that we know you are waiting with bated breath for. I have been waiting for bated breath. <laughs> so, I am recording this podcast under the influence of cold medicine, and that leads into one of the stories that I wanted to mention this week, which is... Um, Shortly after New York mayoral hopeful Christine Quinn finally made a deal on paid sick days, Philadelphia's quasi-democratic mayor Michael Nutter has decided to veto paid sick days for Philadelphia. And so their city council passed it with uh, one vote short of a veto-proof majority, and they are busily casting about for that one vote to overturn Nutter's veto. But speaking as someone who does not get paid sick days because I'm a freelancer, I... I'm wondering when these Democratic mayors who theoretically care about working people are going to start acting like it. One of the stories that I've been watching this week is a set of rolling strikes against the company Republic Waste, one of the largest sanitation companies in the United States, whose significant stakeholder is none other than Bill Gates who you may know from his education reform efforts, or uh, I, I believe he had a tech business. Of oh, some yeah. Kind. What was that called? So <laughs> Bill Gates' company, a company in which he is a major investor, Republic Waste, has seen a wave of strikes and lockouts involving members of the Teamsters Union around the United States. These are stories that I've written about for In These Times and at Alternate when Sarah edited me there. <laughs> What's happened over the past week is that once again we've seen strikes moving in a way that doesn't happen often in the United States because labor law, as we will discuss, I imagine, often on the belabored podcast, <laughs> labor law is designed to prevent unions from doing any of the things that are particularly effective for wresting power away from bosses. One of those is for a group of workers in one workplace or one city to spread their struggle with a company elsewhere. The Teamsters have been savvy about working loopholes into their contracts, what are called conscience clauses that say, if someone shows up and is picketing from somewhere else against your company and they're outside the door of your workplace, you don't have to walk in. And so we see a tactic here that doesn't happen that often in the U.S. labor movement, where strikers in Ohio have come to now six different cities in California to create a pretext for sanitation workers at the same company in various cities in California to jo effectively join the strike and increase the pressure on this company. This is a tactic that we've seen work for the Teamsters before. It's interesting to see it spread, and it raises the question of how unions elsewhere will deal with a legal system that makes it very, very difficult to pull this off and very difficult to spread a strike in a way that it actually brings down enough pressure on a company that they're forced to do something they didn't want to do. Right. Um, 
So we also saw this week, pardon the airplane behind me. Um, That's we, Bill Gates. <laughs> we blame Bill Gates for everything. No, um, I can't blame Bill Gates for this one, though. I can blame President Obama for proposing Social Security cuts. Um, this little thing you might have heard of that they're calling chained CPI, which is a wonky term for something that is essentially a benefit cut for seniors, veterans, people with disabilities, anybody who relies on Social Security benefits for their living. Um, It's a change to the consumer price index that assumes that if the price of, say, steak goes up, people will substitute something cheaper like chicken. Or, you know, then when the price of chicken goes up, they'll substitute something cheaper like cat food. So this is interesting to me as a labor story because the people leading the charge at the rally yesterday outside of the White House, um, that was this Tuesday, were from the AFL-CIO, who have been, of course, some of Obama's biggest champions. But yesterday, um, AFL-CIO political director Damon Silvers was out there speaking, talking about Obama's bad move on this and how if the president wants to cut Social Security, he will not be able to do it with labor providing cover. So cutting Social Security is terrible politics. It's terrible policy. Republicans are already gearing up to attack the president over cuts that they want. But it's also interesting to us here in this podcast because... AFL-CIO President Richard Trumka has said for a while that he was going to be willing to take on the Democrats in a way that labor hasn't in a long time, and we haven't really seen any evidence of that up until this week, maybe. Um, This was a rally where they had 2-point-something million signatures on a petition. Um, It was hosted by members of Congress. Um, Democrats in the House and the Senate have said that they will not support any budget that includes cuts to Social Security. Um, this is shaping up to be a big, messy fight and largely an intra-democratic party fight. So it'll be interesting to see which side labor actually falls on and, more importantly, what they're actually willing to do to press the president who basically got elected with labor support. Something we'll be watching. To close out our quick news roundup, something else we'll be watching this month. The ballots are in workers' homes this month at Kaiser for what is a rerun of the largest private sector union election in several decades in the United States. This is an election that pits SEIU, the Service Employees International Union, against the National Union of Healthcare Workers, a breakaway union a few years old, which has teamed up with the California Nurses Association. These fights between unions often get covered in terms of the question of the resources that they take up or in some of the mainstream media whether this will mean fewer campaign contributions for Democrats. (laughs) But what we see in this fight, besides the question of which union these 40,000-some workers will be part of when the ballots are counted next month, is a debate between two sides about how unions should deal with companies. You have SEIU accusing NUHW of going on strike rather than winning. You have NUHW accusing SEIU of giving up billions of dollars in unnecessary concessions and teaming up with the boss to lobby against patient safety protections on issues like nursing ratios, and a real question about what direction the labor movement is headed in the healthcare industry and more broadly. This election is being run again because the labor board called for a redo based on allegations that management and SEIU had illegally colluded the first time around in intimidating people. 
whether there'll be a different result from the first election in which SEIU won fairly decisively is something that we'll know next month. Now how you feel? CEOs getting mega paid while you barely making minimum wage. The first time I put that pen to a page when I realized I couldn't be the government slave. All right. So with that, I think we're going to take a few minutes and talk about something else fun that Josh and I were covering last week, uh, the second strike of New York's fast food workers. Yes. So before we go to our very exciting interview with Karen Lewis, we want to talk about this New York story that is also a national story. Sarah, you wrote about it for The Atlantic and you were out throughout the day (laughs) at the fast food strikes. As someone who's been on this story for a long time, what were you struck by last week? The first time around, the strikes had been very well supported by clergy and by um, the neighborhoods, by other workers, car wash workers, grocery store workers, other low-wage workers in the city. But this time around, there were really... um, Some of the churches had adopted a fast food location, or I spoke with um, a city council candidate who had adopted a Domino's pizza in his neighborhood um, and had several of his friends and supporters out there um, supporting the workers from that store. People really sort of signed up to keep an eye on these fast food locations in their neighborhood and make sure that nothing bad happens to the strikers after the fact, as well as to, you know, walk the, the protest lines. They were not supposed to call them picket lines. And for folks who aren't in New York, I up until recently was a person that's not in New York. What's the larger significance of this struggle here? One of the things that I think is interesting about New York, right, is that it's so densely packed that you can have like a McDonald's, a Burger King, a, you know, KFC and a, you know, Wendy's within half a block of each other. And so it actually, that makes it easier for one organization to target lots of different um, stores, different franchises in the same campaign. So it's really drawing together all of the workers in an industry, or at least a lot of the workers in an industry. It's certainly not the majority of fast food workers in the city yet, but it's drawing together the workers in this industry in a way that we don't see very often. Usually we see union union campaigns run store by store, um, shop by shop. This is somewhat different. Also, another thing that was different this time around, we should say, is that the first time it was mostly minority strikes. It was mostly one or two people going out on strike at, at different stores. This time they had at least three that were unable to open in the morning because the majority of their staff was out on strike. Yeah, I know it was striking for me talking to some of the people who were out who had not gone on strike the first time in November who said, were very upfront, yeah, I waited to see what would happen to the first group. And so the strategy that we see now with Walmart workers, with janitors and Target buildings here in fast food where you have a minority of the workforce go out on strike as a step on the way to building majority support, right. looks like it's starting to show dividends. This is not often how campaigns go, often having been an organizer, you you go out of your way, you devote yourself, you sleep with your spreadsheets, and you make sure that you have the support of a broad majority of the workforce before you take particularly aggressive actions. This strategy is about using an action by a courageous minority as a step to build majority support. And in the case of the fast food campaign, so far it's gotten them from 
200 people striking to 400 some people doing it. Right. And it's worth mentioning that um, some of the workers who did not go out on strike the first time had not heard about it because this is, you know, even though, like we said, it's a densely um, set up structure with stores right on top of each other, it's still a big city and it was still, you know, not they were still not able to get to everyone. And also there's a lot of turnover in this workforce. But this time around, we saw people who had seen their their colleagues go on strike or who had maybe signed a petition, like um, one gentleman that I spoke to before this story. He had signed the petition and his boss told him that he was he was very hurt. He was very... Um, he felt violated because this worker had signed a petition calling for $15 an hour and for union recognition, and he fired him. And now we know that that's illegal. You can't fire somebody for union activity. You can fire somebody for almost anything else. So this manager was actually just pretty sort of, you know, didn't think before he spoke because they because he was this man was told he was fired for union activity. He, they were able to go in there with the city council member and the organizers from the campaign and get him his job back. And once that happens, right, once you see what the union can do for you, and once your coworkers see what the union can do for them, it really gets people to feel connected to this whole movement. And they do see it as a movement. And this was done on the anniversary of Martin Luther King's assassination for a reason, because they do want to say that this is a civil rights struggle as well. These are largely workers of color. These are, you know, people who live in places like the Rockaways that were just devastated by Hurricane Sandy. This is a struggle that is bigger than just the fast food industry. And that shows because the group that started this organizing campaign, New York Communities for Change, they originally got the idea of trying to organize the fast food workers when they were talking to them about housing issues. And so this is a group that does, it does work on housing, they do work on labor, they do work in the schools, um, they do all of these community struggles, they're doing work around um, rebuilding after Sandy, and the labor struggle is just part of that whole struggle for economic justice. Needless to say, this is something we'll be following much more. Yes, indeed. We hope there will be many opportunities to return to the story. So, are we ready for Karen Lewis? Are you guys ready for Karen Lewis? I, uh, I guess ahead. we don't know if they're ready for Karen Lewis. We don't know because we're not recording this live. Um, Wait, so... you just gave away the secret of the oh, podcast. No. Um, this was supposed to go months before people found out we weren't recording it live. <laughs> so we spoke to the president of the Chicago Teachers Union, Karen Lewis, not too long ago about... The school closings in Chicago, about the strike, about the future of teachers' unions. We talked to her afterwards about her upcoming bat mitzvah. We did indeed. But um, we'll, we'll share those details for our launch event next week. <laughs> so you'll have to make sure you come out. But meanwhile, um, we give you our interview with Karen Lewis. So come my sister, hit with the And so I wanted to start off all of this by asking you to talk about um, the current fight about school closures in Chicago and how that fits into your larger, what you've been dealing with since you took over. Well, I think the school closures are a symptom of a really bad school policy that we in Chicago have been struggling under for over 10 years. So 
this all comes out of when No Child Left Behind came around. They said, oh, if the school's bad, we're going to close it down because, you know, it's bad. As if the building makes something bad or whatever. And what's happened is as schools close, they destabilize other schools that are close by. So there's this domino effect that, of course, they never took into consideration. <clears throat> the notion that children are in failing schools and they can go someplace else and then all of a sudden they're not going to be failing anymore. There was some kind of idea that that would work. When, in effect, what we have found is that children don't do better and when schools close, they lose anywhere from three to six months on their learning, or at least on their testing. It depends on how you want to qualify that. I mean, you have to use their... Uh, rubric if you're going to um, you know investigate what it is they're doing um, so I noticed this some time ago and I kept saying why are they continuing to close schools open up charter schools that don't do any better and don't even take the kids that were in the schools that were closed so there's just this sort of like problem and what we saw years ago was that the union did not have a response to this and had not done any research about it and certainly not mobilized its membership around it, but was dealing with things on an individual basis. So they would help teachers write resumes so that they could go to other jobs. But that was never good enough for the reformers, so they just started stepping it up. So instead of it being one or two schools closing, they would do seven, eight, nine, ten. One of the problems is they weren't keeping up with the children. So if you're responsibility is to do what's best for children, then you need to know that they're moving in the right direction. So when schools were closed, if kids didn't go to the school that they were sent to, there was no way to find out where those kids went. And they didn't go to private school. They weren't, you know, not all of them went to private school, not all of them went to charters, and not all of them left town. So where were these kids going? Um, and, and, and CPS does a horrible job of tracking kids in terms of where they go from year to year if they don't go in a prescribed motion. So what inevitably happened is that we kept seeing the destabilization of neighborhoods. So in the neighborhood that I live, in, which is a kind of gentrifying neighborhood, if I wanted to send my child to a traditional K-8 through school, there would be none for my child to go to. And the thing that made it so hard was there didn't seem to be a master plan about why you're closing these schools. So it was kind of willy-nilly. So it wasn't like these are the worst performing schools, you know, so that was the other thing. It was like there were other schools in the neighborhood that were quote-unquote worst performing. So it just seemed so arbitrary and capricious. Um, and anytime you do things like that, you, you make people very, very uncomfortable. So that's the basic story about, that's the history. So where we are now is that they want to up the ante and close like 80 of these schools or 50 or 37 or whatever. But it's a huge number. Chicago has a very, very different gang structure than most other cities with gang structures. So there's no hierarchy, okay? So you may be nominally a gangster disciple and you may be nominally, uh, you know, something else, a vice lord. Let's just use those terms. 
Not that they would be in the same neighborhood, but, you know, just for illustration's sake. In Chicago, the gangster disciples are fighting amongst themselves. And so, you know, this block may be fighting against the next block. Literally. I mean, so it's like we have little fiefdoms. And again, these are not, they're not defending drug territory. They're defending respect because our children have so little of it when... If somebody disrespects them, you know, it becomes, it, it escalates outrageously. Part of the problem is we don't have counseling programs for children early enough. We have almost gotten rid of play in preschool and kindergarten because we're so busy trying to get them to pass tests that we don't focus on the things that actually build their socio-emotional um, learning along with their academic piece. So... Some of the conflict resolution that you learn through play is disappeared, you know. So, and it's done because they think about things like, oh, well, you know, the average poor child comes to school with um, 3,000 less words or whatever, how many vocabulary words they're missing. Okay, guess what? They'll get that. But they also need to know how to be socialized. They not need to know how to play with one another. They need to know how to negotiate their spaces, so in Chicago, we have issues of safety that are absolutely out of control. We have this murder rate that I cannot begin to tell you how embarrassing it is. And, and for, for us to pay attention to one young woman that was murdered, um, she'd been to the um, uh, inauguration, uh, she actually went to the school that I taught, where I taught, before I left uh, the classroom. And I knew one of the kids that was involved in it. So, I mean, it was like, this stuff comes to home very quickly in Chicago because it's, it touches everybody. Last week we had um, a six-month-old baby. It shot five times. Her father was changing her diaper in the car. Well, from what I understand, this baby... They had beautiful pictures of her on the news. So you know, clearly a six-month-old is happy, doesn't know how life is affecting her. But her mother was shot in the leg when she was pregnant with this baby. And from what I've been told, the father actually murdered somebody the week before, and this was a retaliation piece. So this is the kind of stuff that's going on that our children have to walk from where their neighborhoods are. They know their culture. They know where the safe streets are. Going to another school that may or may not have the same culture. And one of the things that I keep trying to explain to people is in Chicago, we've got a lot of Capulets and Montagues. You know, so it's going to take a while to do this process right, and they want to rush it through, close a, a, a boatload of schools, and they won't even save the money they, they claim to save. So before, it was for academic performance. This year they say it's for underutilization, but they're not closing any high-performing schools that are underutilized. So, I mean, it's like, it's still a performance piece, and it still affects 9 out of 10 black schools. And again, in Chicago, we have intensely segregated schools. So we have what I call apartheid schools, in which 99% of the um, students are black, and then we have intensely segregated schools, which are 90%. And of those schools, 45% of the um, apartheid schools are on this list, and 37% of the intensely segregated schools are on the hit list. 
you've obviously spoken now and all over the place about the role of race and class in the fight over Chicago schools and in education. I'm also interested in the role that gender plays in the fight over education, specifically of how teachers are demonized. Um, I know that Gloria Steinem wrote to you guys saying that teacher bashing was anti-feminist. We'd love to just hear you speak a little bit more about race and class and gender in in this whole... Well, if you think about it, 87% of of K-12 teachers are, are women. And, I th- and, and we have been talking for a while amongst ourselves about this, this intense level of teacher bashing and why it's gotten so vicious. And in such a f- relatively short period of time, I mean, there was a time when teachers were revered in the community, and now they're, they're demonized. And we just feel like teachers have been an easy target, primarily because we're not used to fighting. We're not used to a lot of confrontation. We're used to kind of like, okay, um, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it because, you know, we all care about what's best for kids. So when people told us, well, go get master's degrees because that will make you better. People rushed out, got master's degrees. Oh, get endorsements in, in ESL or special ed or whatever. And then people rushed out and did that or, you know, become nationally board certified. People did that. But it is never enough when your goal is to really destroy public education. So you don't really care who you take out with you. So the narrative that teachers don't care about children has been um, very interestingly woven. People kind of took it and, and ran with it. The only problem was it absolutely makes no sense. So I get up every morning to go deal with children and I don't like them or I don't care about them. I mean, it's just, (laughs) it's not the kind of thing you do. So turning this discussion around and and making sure people understand we are now living in a bizarro world. Um, (laughs) So it's actually working, but I do think that the, the nastiness that has been heaped upon teachers and through other women. So you have people like Michelle Ree, who are women and who, you know, represent the best of the best. But, I mean, it's, it's an elite issue. So it's an issue where people who are very wealthy and very well educated also care more about black and brown children that they don't know. I mean, it just, again, makes absolutely no sense. This is a narrative that we started poking holes in about four or five years ago, and then all of a sudden people starting to, you know what, I, so, so explain to me now how the billionaires who don't believe in public education, don't care about black and brown children, don't send their own children to public schools, all of a sudden they care deeply about black and brown children as if they exist in some kind of vacuum. So the key is for us... Um, how do you make sense out of that? But part of the issue about gender is something that we don't ever bring up because it also makes people very uncomfortable, you know, because on one level, there's still this sort of paternalistic, I'd like to protect women thing. And on the other hand, let's cut them off at the knees. Let's put women out of work, women who may actually be caring for their own children and families. So this is a really anti-family 
mentality. And it's also, uh, you know, the magical thinking as if children don't have their own parents that love them. They don't live in communities that have been destroyed by um, not having appropriate places for for the parents to work. So my question has always been, if you love black and brown children so much, why do you hate their parents? I want to ask you about one aspect of that discussion around teachers, which is this question of professionalism, because especially with these attacks on teachers' benefits and teachers' bargaining rights, we see some union leaders and some national unions doubling down on this language about professionalism and emphasizing the training that goes into being a teacher, the difficulty and the idea that these are unions of professional workers. At the same time, you have some teacher unionists, like the the leftist caucus in Newark, for example, that are specific about rejecting professionalism as, as an organizing principle for how we think about teachers and calling themselves education workers and arguing that talking about professionalism obscures some of the class dynamics and divides teachers from the person who watches the kids during lunch or the person who cooks the kids' food. What what do you make of that? Well, I I think it's something that people need to find where they feel most comfortable. I don't think it's it's that kind of, 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 of black and white issue, so to speak. It's not an either or. It's extremely complicated and it is interwoven. My experience has been that the people who serve the food, the people who work as as paraprofessionals, those are the people that actually have experience with children in those neighborhoods because they, by and large, work in the neighborhoods in which they live. And they are also the ones who can tell you exactly what's going on in a building. If you want to know something about a kid, go ask one of the lunchroom ladies. They will tell you exactly what's going on in that kid's family. I mean, the professionalism piece is important on one level because the Billionaire's Boys Club are saying, we don't need professionals. We could just train somebody for five weeks and throw them in there and let them do it like they do in the Army, you know. And we think that's garbage. But, you know, the other piece to that is there is a coming together of the different unions. We're working right now with unions that represent the janitors, the security workers, and the lunchroom ladies. We're working together with them because school closings affect all of us. The other problem is that we have to defend professionalism, but we can't defend it as the only thing we're doing. I'm a person that sees a lot of gray, you know, and a, and a lot of purple, I'm going to put it that way. You know, I, I, just seeing these things as either or um, don't help because I think that we need to figure out a way to bring this together because it makes us stronger. I wanted to ask you about the transformation that took place within the Chicago Teachers Union with with the core caucus sweeping out the folks who had been running the union. I think observers on all sides recognize that that strike would have been hard to imagine happening without the transformation within the union that took place first. We see now caucuses in other cities that identify themselves with your model. Here in New York, there's a caucus called MORE that would like to change the direction of the United Federation of Teachers in Newark, especially after the contract that was agreed to that includes these performance-based bonuses. There's been a backlash and there are people trying to take over the union there in the next election. Do you want to see those efforts succeed? Do you want to see these challengers take control in those locals of the AFT? 
I think every local has to decide what works for them. You know, I think one of the one of the things that um, that I find is like it's like uh, again, it's complicated. If you if you're teaching, you know that every kid isn't at the same place. You know, so you have to differentiate your instruction. So some people are more ready to be accepting of a different way of looking at union. Other people, and even in Chicago, there are people that don't agree with us and think that. You know, I just want you to um, enforce a contract. I don't, I don't want to do this other stuff. I don't want to march. Um, I don't want to do that. You know, I just want to go in my room and teach. The only problem is you cannot wake up tomorrow and, and, and be in yesterday. Okay. So part of the issue is that what we wanted uh, and what turned out are always two different things. Um, we did not have an electoral strategy. We came together as someone, as a, as a group of people that wanted to study the issue and wanted to move our union in a different direction. Um, and what happened, and the only reason we were able to be elected is that our union was in a state of um, dissolving itself because they, there was a, a massive infighting in the, um, in the power structure of the union. And they actually imploded. So when we ran, there were five there were five caucuses running for leadership at that time. And changing culture is the hardest thing you can ever do. It is absolutely the hardest thing you can ever do. And to to shift the unions from the service model to an organizing model takes not just a few people that want to do it, but it also takes the will of, of rank-and-file members to become empowered in their buildings and in their union. As a matter of fact, um, I had a special meeting Wednesday, and um, the, the woman that's running against me um, said it, you know, you know, what have you done for this union? It was a kind of a like, you know, we haven't gotten, we didn't get a great contract, we didn't get this, we didn't get that. And, and one of the things she actually said is, well, why didn't you keep us out on strike until we could get a moratorium on school closings? I'm like, really? <laughs> it's like, okay, so we should be out on an illegal strike? <laughs> okay. So part of, the, part of the issue is when people ask, you know, what, well, what have you done for the union? Because it's difficult for me right now in my classes. And I clearly understand you're going to be punished for changing things. You're going to be punished for standing up and saying, you're asking me to do stuff that's harmful to children. We have been complicit, you know, for the last 20 years on doing harm to kids. And even though we knew it was bad for kids, we, you know, it's kind of like you don't say it because, you know, maybe they'll stop and realize how bad it is and come and do something else. And that hasn't been the case. So the key of, of, of changing the culture of a union I would think that any union wants its members to be more involved in it and to, um, to have fresh ideas. But right now we're in a resistance mode. It's so funny how the opposition describes the unions as being very powerful. And, and we don't feel that way. You know, we, we've not felt that way for many, many years. So to exert some power, because we actually have it, it's time to take it and, and make, that, make that true.
One of the things you talked about in your contributions of form in the nation, for example, is recognizing who your enemies are and recognizing that because someone is a, a Democrat does not mean that they're not an enemy. What, g- going nationally, does there need to be some kind of rupture in the relationship between the teachers' unions and the Democrats? Can there be a transformation, and do the unions have to transform before that relationship changes? You know, this is the part that's the most difficult for me is politics, which because I hate politics, actually. Um, for a long time, I felt we live in a one-party system. We just have two branches of it. And I really don't see how we function, how we continue to function in a system that only has one party, has two branches. And I find it very interesting that... Um, you know, hearing people call Obama a socialist, it just makes me want to fall <laughs> out laughing. It's like, wow, you know, really? It's like, I don't, I don't you know, and for me, it's, it's at, at this point, and maybe it's because I'm old, you know, and it's just, I just don't see political structures the way they're set up right now and the way we're utilizing them to our benefit. So the key is if we use the the political system to hold our elected officials accountable by mass movement, I would like to see uh, a, a whole new party clearly that speaks for working people. Um, but it, it, the way our system is set up, it's very difficult to have real good conversations about third parties you know, so, so let me give you an example of why that doesn't work well, all right? So in Illinois, I believe it was in 2010, in that election cycle, it was before we got elected, the um, teachers' unions in Illinois decided not to give to the Democratic Party. So that's how Jonah Edelman was able to come in and would stand on children and give them a whole lot of money and we ended up with Senate Bill 7. So we got punished for not giving them money. The reason we hadn't given them money was because the year before they came up with a really horrible pension bill. And, you know, the unions responded. Now, of course, I wasn't involved in any of that, but I got smacked with it is the way I feel about it, you know. So those of us who weren't in power, we had no idea what was going on. And then we walk in and they're like, oh, you're going to have school reform and it's going to be ugly and you know, just be prepared. We're going to take away all your rights. Like, what? <laughs> it's like, it's like, so thank you, I just got elected. Mm, all right, I didn't have anything to do with that. So this time, um, you know, we had that same conversation. A lot of our members were like, why are we giving the Democrats money? I said, okay. So when we didn't, we got smushed. So we're in this thing where you cannot put all your eggs in a legislative basket. And I think the problem with business unionism is that that's what they've re, you know, relied on. Well, well, we have relationships with, with legislators, okay? So now that's not working so well, but if you don't have mass movement behind you to move legislators appropriately, then they don't take you seriously. Mm-hmm. And people say, well, why aren't we suing them? Like, okay, we have sued. But people watch too much TV and they don't understand <laughs> that lawsuits aren't over, you know, in an hour at the end of the show and everybody, you know, walks away because we've been appropriately vindicated. 
because the other side will fight you. So when we did a case in 2010 where they illegally laid off our members, we're still fighting that case. It's still in federal court. Three years later, I got members on the street. So there are no immediate cures for what ails us, so to speak. So if you go the legislative route and the legal right route, first of all, that's also playing by somebody else's rules. So you know Lonnie Guineer talks about this. I mean, she's like my hero. When she says, who are the winners and losers? We know that's really easy because you can just sort people out. But she also says, who makes the rules to the game, right? Because whoever makes the rules has an advantage. So the legislative piece and the legal piece, are those rules are, are out of our hands, out of our control. So, but what we can control is our membership and having them active, having them involved, and having them push their legislators, but also having them take the streets and understand that we will shut down your city. You will not be able to function without dealing with us fairly. And that's the way it is right now in Chicago when school closing hearings would happen. You know, 10, 12 people would show up. We're getting thousands of people to come out to school closing hearing meetings. And what they are saying with one voice is, keep your hands off my school. Now, what CPS is saying is, oh, they understand we're going to have to close some schools. Oh, they don't want to hear that. <laughs> so... The last question that, that Lonnie Guineer asks, though, is what are the stories the winners tell the losers to keep them playing the game? So that's where I think a lot of people don't think about that. They may get immediately that who made the rules to the game piece um, and realize that when you're playing on somebody else's turf, you don't have control over that. So the key is to change the rules of the game. That's where I throw in the Star Trek piece, the Kobayashi Maru, where you have to go in and change the rules if you're going to win. And that's basically how we've done. We've operated on Kobayashi Maru. <laughs> I love it. I think that is the perfect place to end. So from now on, every belabored guest will have to have at least one Star Trek reference. Yes, at least one, maybe two. And if you can work on a Star Wars reference, two will be really impressive. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. As we close this week, as every week, we have a quick segment we call... Ah, I wish I had written that story. <laughs> Title is tentative. Right. Sir, what, what has come out recently that you that inspired incredible jealousy when you read it? <laughs> so just this morning, I was reading um, the first of two pieces by Jane Slaughter at Labor Notes, talking about a workers' cooperative in Mexico. And this is these are a couple of long feature pieces that she you know, went down and talked to the workers um, and really takes us from the beginning when this was a, a union campaign when striking workers had sort of backed the bosses into a corner and the bosses let them buy out the business. Um, and I am going to incite you all to go read these and we will link them at our website um, at Descent Magazine. But I am fascinated by the idea of worker co-ops. This is what happens when you take worker control to its logical conclusion, right? Is that we don't actually need the boss at all. Um, 
they call me a communist when I say stuff like that. Anyway, um, but I think it's really fascinating, and I encourage everyone to read it. And now, Josh, what did you wish you'd written this week, or last week, or whenever? Well, I, I've been wishing recently that I had the expertise of Eli Friedman of Cornell, who wrote in the winter issue of Jacobin about the labor movement in China in an article called China in Revolt, the subject of a recent panel here in New York. Eli writes about what appears to outsiders as a paradox, that in recent years in China we've actually seen arguably unusually pro-labor legislation pass at the federal level in China that on paper extends labor protections. And at the same time, we've seen this spike in strikes, strikes that are not legally protected and that, needless to say, occur in spite of rather than through the efforts of the official state union in China. Eli, in his article, talks about the the reasons that the passage of ostensibly pro-labor federal legislation, which may be part of an earnest strategy of trying to build up domestic demand, hasn't changed the basic realities in the workplace, in part because of the deep involvement of local party officials with local capital, and argues that if there is a route by which we will see a transformation in Chinese labor relations and a change in de facto the protections that people have in the workplace, it's more likely to come through a continuing pattern of strikes that force capital to find some kind of accommodation where there are actual substantive, meaningful rights to confrontational collective bargaining in China. Which is exciting. Um, So that brings us to the end. And we're just going to mention that next week we will have um, one of my favorite writers, um, Paul Mason. He's the economics editor for BBC Newsnight and also somewhat of a uh, labor historian. And we're going to talk to him about labor in Europe and also probably Margaret Thatcher because, you know, she died this week. We'll also be talking about immigration a hot topic this week, next week, and I suspect for some time to come. In the meantime, we hope you'll join us at our launch event next Thursday night. At 7 p.m. at the Smart Clothes Gallery, which is going, we are going to be surrounded by the artwork of the brilliant and wonderful Molly Crabapple. And you should, yes, again, the link will be at our, at the website at descentmagazine.org. Sarah, if someone has an idea for the podcast, how can they share it with us? Could they share it with you over Twitter? Maybe? They could. They could. You can send us your ideas via Twitter at hashtag belabored or leave us a comment at the website or any number of other ways. But for now, um, tweet at us. We'd love to hear from you. Pleasure joining you. So hard.